Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. In episode 12, Rabbi Shalom explored the history of the synagogue. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom returns to the synagogue and analyzes its current purpose and what role the synagogue will have in Jewish life in the future. In 1948, a man named Simon Rabidovich wrote an essay called Israel, the Ever-Dying People, which was written in 1948. Rabidovich wrote, he who studies Jewish history will readily discover that there is hardly a generation in the diaspora that did not consider itself the final link in Israel's chain. Each saw before it the abyss ready to swallow it up. Each generation grieved not only for itself, but also for the great past that was going to disappear forever, as well as for the future of unborn generations who would never see the light of day. This was in 1948 that he wrote this, imagining that every past generation had always complained that they were going to be the last. And guess what happens now? People still say the same things, the same complaints. You know, there were likely prophets in the time of the Bible who were very happy, who thought everything was going well, who predicted that the kings would live long and happy lives. They didn't make the Bible. The ones who predicted doom and gloom, they won. They made it in. Now, Jews have been complaining about the future and the past and the present, for a long time, so why should now be any different? Now this evening we're honoring our development committee, and the major role of the development committee is supporting our congregation, supporting our synagogue. But when you hear news in the Jewish press, in the forward, in each of the major movements, that the synagogue model is in trouble, that synagogues are losing membership, that it's on the verge of collapse, you could ask the question, why are we bothering with this committee? <laughs> What's the future? Why are we spending all this energy on something that may be doomed, doomed, doomed? <laughs> well, maybe not. Last week, we explored the origins and the history of the synagogue. We discovered that its function in Jewish life was summed up by three different names that it acquired over the centuries. The first is as the Beit Knesset, the house of meeting or the house of assembly, just like the Israeli parliament is the Knesset the assembly. The second was a Beit Tefillah, a house of prayer and religious service and practice, but we also saw that prayer was not confined to the synagogue, it was done daily, it was done with a minion, a, a prayer quorum of ten people, whether or not there was a building. And finally, after Beit Knesset, assembly, Beit Tefillah, prayer, there was also the Beit Midrash, the house of study and learning. All of these were functions of a synagogue. And we also last time touched on some of the challenges that began to appear at the end of the uh, 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, and certainly into the 20th. In an age of enlightenment, belief in the content of the prayers and in the fact that a God would want you to offer these prayers again and again and again, over and over again, well, that belief began to decline. In an era of freedom, the sense of obligation, whether it was a religious obligation or a sort of social peer pressure communal obligation to assemble, the Beit Knesset, well, that also became less of an obligation and more of an emotional attachment or maybe even a sense of guilt. And initially, you would be guilted into going maybe once a week, maybe once a month, but guilt faded to the point that people felt guilty only enough to go twice a year. 
about 10 days apart in the fall. And that, that was enough. That, 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 that covered the guilt enough. They weren't worried about it. But they don't feel an obligation to go. They don't feel like they have to be there. Most importantly, in a time of secularization, in a time of Jewish diversity, exploding Jewish diversity, there were many other ways to be Jewish. At the turn of the 20th century, you could be involved in Jewish political parties. You could be involved in Jewish community centers and community activities. You could be involved in Jewish federations, Jewish self-help organizations. You could be a Zionist and involved in a Jewish peoplehood and ethnic identity. You could move to the state of Israel after 1948 and live in Hebrew and have your students, your children, and the students that you taught in school be living a Jewish life every day, speaking a Jewish language. Who needs to go to synagogue? I told the story last time, a friend of mine lived in Israel, and someone asked him, where are you going for Yom Kippur? And he thought his friend was asking what synagogue, and the truth was he was asking which beach? Because who cares about the synagogue? You're Jewish all the time there. If anything, the holidays are a time to relax and not feel guilty. So what is the reality today? What is the state of the synagogue? Now you hear a statistic that comes up a lot, it's been stable for many years, and that is that at any one moment in time, around 50% of American Jews are affiliated with some kind of a synagogue. Now if you go inside the numbers, it's both better and worse than it sounds. It's better because that's a snapshot at any one moment. On February 24th, 50% of American Jews were affiliated with the synagogue. But that doesn't mean that over the course of their lifetime, only 50% are affiliated. In fact, a, great, a greater number report they have been affiliated at one point in their life cycle. Could have been as children, it could have been when they had kids in school and they drop out, it could be when they retired, they rejoin. It's at any one moment, but a greater percentage than 50% have had some connection, some contact with the synagogue. When do they tend to leave? Well, they often tend to leave after the bar mitzvah, and it creates a phenomenon that's often called pediatric Judaism, where you've got a generation that stays until they're about 13 or so, and then they drop out, and then they have kids, and they make them go only until they had to go, which was until they're 13, then they drop out. And so nobody in the family has more than a 13-year-old's understanding of what it could mean to be Jewish, but they know that they're Jewish, and they feel like if they suffered, their kids have to suffer exactly the same way. Now, the other time, it's often a gap. After the kids are gone, maybe after they're off to college, people tend to drop back. And also, when you're a young adult, before you have kids, it's very rare that you'll find people that join congregations in that age. But even more important, when you go inside the numbers, is to ask, what does this affiliation mean? Let's say 50% of American Jews are members of a synagogue on a particular day. But only 27% of American Jews as a whole attend synagogue once a month or more. Now, if you figure maybe 10% of American Jews are Orthodox, and you figure someone who self-identifies as Orthodox is going to attend synagogue at least once a month, if not once a week, well, now you're talking about a very small percentage of that 50% who are actually going even once a month, let alone even more regularly than that. In many congregations, they have overflow crowds for the high holidays. In fact, very few congregations today stay in their building for the high holidays. They rent auditorium space, they go elsewhere. We don't come to Heller, we go to the Gordon Center in Lake Forest. But the question is, is that a sign of a healthy connection to a synagogue, or is that a problem? 
Is that a sign of a very tenuous connection? Is that going to work two and three generations down? Oh yeah, it's the fall, maybe we should show up. In the last decade, the conservative movement has lost 14% of its membership. There were 240,000 households in 2001. Today, there are about 200,000 households. They've lost 40,000 households from their movement. Last month, the Reconstructionist movement voted to merge their synagogue and their rabbinical school. Their synagogue arm, creating synagogues and communities, their rabbinical school will now be merged for an institutional structure. The reform movement, two years ago, was unable to find jobs for all of its graduates. It was unheard of. No assistant rabbi positions, no positions with the movement itself. There just weren't enough jobs for the graduates of the rabbinical school. And the reform movement complains about their numbers going down too. And the orthodox movement seems to be stable statistically, but again, when you look at the data, even they're losing people. So let's take a look at the handout I gave you. It's two different surveys that demonstrate the problems with the movements and the problems directly with the synagogue. The first study at the top is a Brandeis University-sponsored study on American Jewish population that took place in 2010. And you can see that what people were raised is not what they are today. So of the people who were raised reform, 3% are gone. But it's not quite true because they've gained from other movements. You see, of those raised Orthodox, some left it and went to conservative. And of those raised conservative, some left it. Some went to Orthodox, some went to reform. But by far, the biggest winner is us. <laughs> Not us <laughs> as a congregation, but the secular, just Jewish, none of the above option. Well, that's very intriguing if you're into marketing. And what is your target audience? Well, it seems like the old line movements are not keeping people with the strength that they should. And when you look in more detail at the second survey, which is from the National Jewish Population Survey about 10 years before, these are of people who still consider themselves Jewish. This is not by halakhic definition, but if you call yourself Jewish, good enough. And the question was, how are you raised and what are you today? Again, you hear about the growth of orthodoxy, the return to tradition. Well, I'm sorry. The numbers don't bear it out. Because of people who say today they're Jewish, who were raised Orthodox, only 42% still consider themselves Orthodox. They've lost 58% who don't identify with their movement anymore. Of those raised conservative, only 56% still identify as conservative. And large numbers have moved over to reform or just Jewish. In fact, reform and just Jewish do a better job of keeping the people who stay Jewish in their own denomination. Now, they didn't include humanistic as one of the choices. We weren't statistically large enough to show up in the survey. But you can see that if you identify with a movement, and if you're joining a synagogue based on that movement, well, the movements are losing. And none of the above seems to be winning. As one example, in the last decades, there's been a huge growth in what are called chavurot. A chavurah is a small, often lay-led community that does not have a building, often does not have a formal structure, often does not have Jews. It's from the word chaver, friend. It's like a friendship circle. But it becomes a kind of small community, 30 families, 40 families, 50 families. Their goal was intense personal experience, doing it for themselves. In many cases, 
they weren't necessarily alienated from tradition. It was an outgrowth of their comfort with tradition. They knew what they were doing. They didn't need the rabbi to do it for them. I sometimes joke that in some congregations, the rabbi is like the designated Jew. He or she has to do everything on behalf of everyone else. So I might not keep kosher, but the rabbi better keep kosher. I drive to two blocks away, but the rabbi better be walking the whole way. Um, you know, this is a, is a bad joke. Um, the idea that he has to suffer on your behalf. Okay. Now, you've heard that in another religious tradition as well. <laughs> but the idea is that the rabbi has to be ultra-Jew, and we just sort of coast along in his way. Now, that's actually very not Jewish in some respects. The idea of the priest having a higher standard than the lady is very Catholic. Um, although, if you go back long enough in Jewish history, there were Jewish priests that had higher standards than the laity as well. So, it actually is both Jewish and not Jewish to think that the clergy has a higher standard. But for people in these Chavurot, they don't want the clergy at a higher standard. They want a kind of egalitarian community where the leader of the service rotates and everybody can have an input. Now, why the decline? Well, the decline is really a symptom. But what is the disease? What is the problem that's causing it? I want to give you four ways to look at it. The first problem is simply the problem of modern society. We have limited attention spans. We have a lot of media competition out there. You know, this is not the only show in town running Friday night. <laughs> There's theater and movies and television and TiVo and Hulu and Netflix and nothing and sleep and family time and everything else. There's that thing called the internet. You might have heard of something called the internet out there. What's the ethos of the internet? I want it free. I want it at any hour of the day. I want it wearing whatever I want. <laughs> I want to be able to make my own. I want to be able to add comments. I want to be able to take it or leave it, and it'll be there if I want it, and if it's not there, oh well, I'll do something else. No commitment. No long-term, lasting connection. Well, I'll surf, right? I'll bounce around here and there. Interesting, not so interesting, yeah, whatever. You see, in modern society, you're free to choose your activities. You're free to choose who you marry. You're free to choose where you live. Close to the synagogue, far from the synagogue. That's very far down the list for a lot of people. Do they care to live in a Jewish area? Actually, when I bought a house, my father-in-law almost got arrested because he drove up and down the neighborhood checking out all the neighbors before we put in the offer. Um, not with our consent, but uh, he did it anyways. And he came back to us and he said, you know, there aren't a lot of Jews in that, on that block. And we said to him, we're sick of Jews. <laughs> I work with Jews all the time. <laughs> I get plenty of Jewish exposure. I don't mind a little civilian time out there. So living in a purely Jewish neighborhood wasn't a high priority to us. Now when we chose to have children, well, it became more of a priority. When we chose to find a community to live in, I can't get a job in the middle of Kansas because we need enough Jews and enough humanistic Jews to support a community that's going to support what I do. But that's a high priority for us. It may not be a high priority for a lot of other people. I mean, our members now are coming from as far away as Grays Lake, Libertyville, and Naperville even, and they're not choosing their housing by the strength of the Jewish community, or choosing a synagogue first, and then moving near to the synagogue they want to be close to. We have a variety of interests out there. Judaism might be one of many interests in a family, in an individual, and it may not be the most important interest that they deal with. This is the second challenge that we have 
It's a question of priorities. You'll read in the Jewish organized press um, a lot of complaints about how much Jewish money isn't going to Jewish causes. There's the Pritzker Pavilion, and there's the, um, the Spielberg archives, and I mean, Spielberg and Pritzker have also given to Jewish causes, certainly, but there's a lot of Jewish names on law school professorships and endowed schools of business and so on and so on, and people in the Jewish community sometimes see it as a zero-sum game. Well, that should be ours. Well, not true. It's a question of priorities. But the bigger challenge when it comes to the future of the synagogue, and not just the organized Jewish community, is how we handle money with synagogues. Our synagogues are like country clubs. You have to apply for membership. You have to pay your dues. Churches run very differently. Anybody wants to come in and sit down in a church, they sit. They pass the plate, you don't put in money, you don't get, you don't get kicked out, you might get a bad luck here and there, but you don't get kicked out. It's all running on voluntary donations and on fundraising. That's why they do bingo. That's why we tend not to do bingo. We don't run that way. Why do people join or stay in a community? Well, again, it's not required anymore. Why do they stay? Why do they join? For some, it's a religious obligation. For some, it's a feeling of community, being with people they know and they like. For some, it's out of guilt. For some, it's inspiration and positive attachment. And for some, it's education of their kids. But the challenge is that each of those factors has faced a decline. Their religious obligation, I talked about the secularization of society. Feeling of community, well, you can get community a lot of ways. It can be your activities, your book clubs, your neighborhood associations, your kids' activities and sports and schools and who knows what else. Guilt is fading. You know, nobody sells cars by guilt anymore. Saying your grandmother would plot if you drove one of those things. Well, just not the most attractive sloganeering. You've got to sell it on the merits and not on the guilt. Inspiration and positive attachment? Well, for some, it's a literacy question. They don't understand the language of the prayers. They find it more traditional than they were. In fact, remember all those conservative Jews that were becoming Reform? It's one of the reasons there's so much more Hebrew in the Reform movement now. And when people raised in Reform are saying, what happened to the Reform that I knew? not what I'm used to. And education for the kids, well, that's a window. And people will postpone it and postpone it as long as possible. I mean, we get people all the time who contact our congregation and say, this is a great fit for us, but I want to wait another year. And we say, you're depriving your kids of positive Jewish experience for another year? Well, see, they're thinking of it in the lens of, I suffered, I want to minimize their suffering. So what's the last possible year I can join to get them to a bar mitzvah? And what's the soonest I can get out of here after the bar mitzvah? Now, to put it on a positive spin, if the primary focus of a congregation is a school, there's really no reason for the people to stay connected. I mean, how many people stay involved in their uh, PTO of the middle school their kids used to go to five years after the kids are there? If it's a middle school and they're done, they're done. If the synagogue connection is for a school to age 13 and the kids are 18 or 22, you're done. So each of these attachments has their limitations, and the trick is to bridge from one to the other and to make people feel that the benefits they're getting for their emotional attachment, their feeling of community, religious obligation, or even guilt, they have to feel like it's worth it. They have to feel like there's a positive connection that makes it worth what it might cost. But more importantly, 
It's getting the word out there that we're open and welcome and flexible. You see, most congregations don't know this, but most congregations, if you say, I can't afford the full dues, I really just can't pay this, they will come to an accommodation with you. And in most congregations, it's confidential. You don't show up on a blacklist or you know, get called and harassed for money. Most congregations tend to be open and welcoming about that, but they don't advertise that because their concern is that people would say they need it when they don't. But the flip side is the people who really do need it are turned off and turned away and feel that they have to pay to pray. They have to pay to feel Jewish. And that should never be the case. Now, a third challenge that we have is that being in a synagogue can be an anti-creative dynamic. You know, car companies are coming out with new cars and new ads and new slogans all the time, but in communities, particularly in Jewish communities, the sense of tradition slows things down. I have a friend whose sister-in-law became a rabbi. Uh, actually, she's a rabbi and a cantor, which technically is called a ranter. <laughs> <laughs> and she was working at a congregation in Connecticut that they loved. It was very creative and interesting. And so my friend went to this synagogue for high holidays. And all of a sudden, they hear, Duh, the pipe organ comes out. And I said, pipe organ? Where did that come from? We never see that at any of the Shabbat services we go to all year long. Well, why do they play the pipe organ at the high holidays? Because all the people that have been members of the synagogue for 30 years, even back when they used the pipe organ all the time, show up twice a year for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and they want it the way we've always done it. You might remember that scene from the movie Keeping the Faith? where the young, hip rabbi brings in a gospel choir to sing Ain Kelohenu in an upbeat, hip manner, and everyone's dancing and singing, and he gets dressed down afterwards by the senior rabbi saying, our old members, they like the old melody, it's what everybody knows, and this is the way we've always done it, and this is what we're going to do, period. Well, this is a challenge, you see. When you make changes, you lose people. But if you stay the same, you lose people. I mean, what's happened in the conservative movement? They ordained women rabbis starting in the mid-1880s. They've now recently decided that they are able to ordain gay rabbis, although they're still under debate whether they have to be celibate gay rabbis or can actually have activity. Um, but what they've done every time that's happened is they lose people. They keep people who otherwise would leave. If you're a gay man or a gay woman and wanted to be a rabbi, you, didn't, you couldn't be a conservative rabbi until very recently. You had to be reformed. On the other hand, as they make these changes, they lose people on the other ends. When they added women rabbis, they lost a whole series of congregations. As they've added gay rabbis, the, the Canadian conservative movement is up in arms about this because they're much more traditional there. Well, this is the challenge, you see. The rabbi is either not bold enough and too politic and too quiescent and too making everybody happy, or He's too political, he's too uh, in your face, he's too telling you what to think, and people aren't gonna, well, guess what? The more you stifle creativity, diversity, integrity of opinion, the less interesting the community becomes and the less people want to stick around. And the last issue is one of ignorance and knowledge. <clears throat> those who don't know how to pray, those who don't know Hebrew are turned off by this return to tradition. 
But those who do know, who have gone to day school, who spent time in Israel, who've gone to Jewish camping, they don't feel like they need anyone to tell them what to do. I have a friend in Berkeley, California, who was raised as a very committed Reformed Jew, spent time in Israel, made Aliyah for a period of time, studied in the conservative movement, in the reform movement, even a modern orthodox study session. He knows his stuff. And when he came back to uh, the United States, he tried joining a synagogue and it wasn't working for him, so what did he do? He started a Chavarah, the East Bay Minion, and it's become very successful. And he finds it very satisfying and very meaningful. And so there was a piece recently in the Forward uh, magazine that talked about these Chavarot as a threat to the synagogue because it's taking the most interesting, bright young people out of the synagogue where they're needed. And you're leaving us behind to sink on the Titanic, right? You've gotten on the lifeboat, and we're downing you. And my friend's response was, I don't see it that way. At least for many of my, the people I know, this is keeping us Jewishly connected when we don't have kids, when we have the time and energy to spend all the time it takes to run a Chabad run. But as we get kids and we want a sense of community, we're going to join a congregation or a, or a day school or some kind of Jewish organized community that's going to make us feel like we're part of something larger. So the Chabad has a positive function to keep us connected in a different way than what you would find in a synagogue, both financially and culturally, socially. Do-it-yourself Judaism is not new. It was a book published in the 1970s based on the Whole Earth Catalog. It was called the Jewish Catalog. And then they came up with the second one, so now it's called the First Jewish Catalog. But it's how to make your own yarmulke, how to make your own palace, how to create your own service, how to run your own seder. To... You don't need anyone to tell you. You can do it for yourself. Now, we in humanistic Judaism believe in evolution. If the synagogue is going to survive in a new environment, it has to change. It has to change. That's what every organism, every living thing does in response to a new environment. So what's the cure? Well, let me give you four ideas. The first is the Beit Knesset is a new name. Remember, it was the Beit Knesset, the House of Assembly. Then it was also the Beit Tefillah, the House of Prayer, and the Beit Midrash, the House of Study. What it really should become is the Beit Am, the House of People. Now, that name doesn't come from nowhere. There's a passage in the Talmud that says one of the signs of someone who's really an Am Ha'aretz, who doesn't know anything, is that they call the Beit Knesset a Beit Am. So I'm not an idiot. <laughs> I'm not an ignoramus in calling it the Beit Am. It needs to be about the Am, the people. Remember Am Yisrael, the people of Israel? The house needs to not be about the building and the building fund and the utility bills. It needs to be about the people. If guilt isn't working, and the old religious beliefs don't sell you anymore, then you need that feeling of community, you need that emotional attachment, that meeting the educational needs of children and reminding people that adults need to learn too. You can have the Knesset, you can have the Midrash, but it's gotta be about the Am, it's gotta be about the people. The second thing you need to do is to get out that message. Now, I didn't come up with this slogan, but it might work for a synagogue membership campaign. From each according to his ability, to each according to his need. <laughs> Anyone know where that's from? <laughs> the son of a rabbi, grandson of a rabbi, in fact. Karl Marx. Okay. <laughs> but the idea is, from each according to their ability, as you're able to support the community, and to each according to their need, we'll help you out. It's a mutual support organization. It was the best of the shed of life. 
that when you were poor, you were able to be helped by the community, and when you had assets, you contributed to help your community. Maybe dues need something different. One idea I read about recently was fascinating. Don't collect all the money at once. Put it on an automatic payment, like the National Public Radio, right? You pay it over the course of the year, but what that reminds you is we're doing things all year round. It's not just $2,000 for one event, which does sound ridiculous. It's the dues to support the community all year long, so if you pay for it all year long, you might use it all year long. You might show up once a month. You might show up even more than once a month. That sliding scale is there, but people don't know about it. You need to change the expectations of what it's all about. Maybe the Beit Knesset needs to lose the Beit, needs to lose the house. Spend less time thinking about the edifice and more time thinking about the context, the people that are there. The third thing we need to do is we need to increase our expectations. A synagogue should not be the place you go to be bored in a language you don't understand. And all too often, people take that approach. That, you know, I'm going, I'm going to suffer, that's what I'm expecting, and that's all, I'm going to, that's all I can expect. This is the best it gets. And I like the canter, so then I'll, I'll tune out everything. Okay. Well, I love our music, too. <laughs> but the hope is that you can get something that's more inspirational, that's more relevant, that's more interesting, that's more warm and welcoming and a feeling of community. Now, in the other direction, it doesn't make a lot of sense for a rabbi to complain to the people who show up about the people who don't show up. <laughs> Why, why are there more people here? Well, I, you don't know. <laughs> you can't. Or to complain about the people that don't come. Well, you know what? That's not their fault. If a play closes at Steppenwolf because nobody showed up, they don't blame the audience who didn't show up. You blame the publicity. You blame the messaging. Maybe the play sticks. You've got to do something different. But you don't blame the audience for not showing up. You've got to make it worth their while got to improve the product. All too often in the Jewish community, we take this attitude of, it's all in the family, right? I don't need to be fancy. I don't need to be polished. I don't need to be nice. Because, you know, you're stuck with us. Creates low expectations and low assumptions. We have to change that because the choice of none of the above is out there. And if people are turned off or turned away or tuned out, they're not going to show up. We have to find people where they are. Yes, the internet. You have to get out there and meet them, but you realize it's not a substitute. When baseball was first beginning to be played professionally, one of the debates when the radio was invented was what do we do with games? Should we broadcast baseball games on the radio? And a number of the owners were very opposed to broadcasting baseball games on the radio. They felt that it was giving away what they were trying to sell. You may recall there was an owner of a professional team in the Chicago area who ran the uh, hockey team, who felt the same way. Why televise the home game? I'm selling tickets. You want to see it? Show it. But the truth that baseball owners learned, and that most sports learned, and that even that family that owns that sports team learned, is that when you make it available, people become interested. And they show up for the real thing because there is no substitute for the real thing. It's just not the same. And people will pay for some things on the internet. You know, if I buy an ebook on my Kindle, it still costs money. In fact, the first month I had my Kindle, I wasn't careful. I bought a lot more than I thought it would because it was like, no money. It was, this is great. 
buy, buy, buy. And then I get the bill. <laughs> well, people will pay for things on the internet, but even more important than that, you give away a podcast, and somebody listens, and their own time, whatever they're wearing, any hour of the day, and they find it interesting. And then they read, listen to another one, and then they read an article, and they read a blog post, and well, this is very interesting. And the comments and the activities this community is doing sound interesting, and maybe I'll check it out. Maybe I'll show up. I spoke with someone recently who's living in Kansas. She's a professor at university, but she wants to give her kid a Jewish education of some kind. And she asked if we had some kind of distance bar mitzvah program, which we don't. I said to her, one of our concerns has always been that if we created a distance learning bar mitzvah program, then people would say, well, you know, your Sunday school is at Deerfield High School and I live in Northbrook. That's too far. I need distance learning. Because it's cheaper, because it's easier, I can do it at home, any time of day, whatever. And this woman said to me, do you think that if I could have my kid in a class with other secular and humanistic Jewish kids, I wouldn't want my kid in a class with those kind of kids? Of course I would. I'm in Kansas here. <laughs> this is the best I can do. If, if I were living in Highland Park, of course I'd be going there to have my, my kid in a class with other kids. That social sign, I mentioned last time, people who need people, that is the key to the synagogue. It's the on, it's the people. And finally, we need to accept that diversity is a key to survival and thriving for the Jewish community and even for the synagogue. Those who were here last week remember that in the fifth century of the common era, in one city, we found five radically different styles of synagogues. One had a mosaic that included the zodiac and the sun god Helios in the middle of the zodiac even though the names of the symbols were all in Hebrew. We had another synagogue that included scenes from the Odyssey and all kinds of inscriptions in Greek. We had another synagogue that was with no figurative art at all and inscriptions only in Aramaic or in Hebrew. Even then, there was a wide variety of synagogues to choose from. I never resent orthodoxy being out there. I can't meet the needs of someone who wants an orthodox synagogue with what we do. But American Judaism needs humanistic congregations in major cities because no one has our message. No one else is addressing our audience. And right now, our people would rather be nowhere than be with something else. The future will be synagogues of all kinds and non-synagogues of all kinds. Chavarot will be there. It's and, not either. It's not synagogue or, it's going to be synagogue and. There'll be synagogues, there'll be people that want that, there'll be different sizes, there'll be different structures. Maybe there won't be as many rabbis running around, but there'll be more freelance rabbis, or rabbis will have to actually earn a real living by being teachers, or social workers, or therapists, or other jobs, and the congregation will be on the side. But, they'll be them. They'll just be different. The answer is not to give up on synagogues, or to give up on rabbis, or to give up on institutions. We need to be institutionalized, <laughs> but in the right way. <clears throat> there are happy and successful congregations out there. I'm, I'm very fortunate to, to be part of one. Is it the ever-dying synagogue for the ever-dying people? How about the ever-renewing people? After all, after all, if we're around from generation to generation to complain, we're around. And we're complaining to each other. More of the same is not going to work. 
but I'm positive I have faith that something different can work. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.